I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. John Christensen. John Christensen is an adjunct assistant professor and Pritzker fellow in the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability and the Department of History at UCLA. He has been an environmental journalist and science writer for 30 years. Previously, he was executive director of the Bill Lane Center for the American West at Stanford University. Please give a warm welcome to John Christensen. Thank you very much. It's great to be here uh, with all of you and uh, with my friends and colleagues. Um, Andrew Revkin is a senior fellow for environmental understanding at Pace University's Pace Academy for Applied Environmental Studies. And as I'm sure many of you know, writes the award-winning Dot Earth blog for the op-ed section of the New York Times which has really reinvented uh, uh, opinion journalism, uh, analysis as a form of ongoing learning and conversation in a, in a very, very interesting and important way. Andrew spent, uh, th has spent three decades covering subjects ranging from the assault on the Amazon rainforest uh, in Brazil, where I first met him many years ago, um, to the changing conditions around the Arctic, from the troubled relationship of climate science and politics to the environmental impacts of rising human populations and resource appetites. From 1995 through 2009, he covered the environment for the Times as a staff reporter um, and has earned most of the major awards that anyone can win for science journalism. He has written uh, three books in the North, the North Pole Was Here, uh, a book for the whole family. Uh, the Burning Season, and Global Warming, Understanding the Forecast. And he is also, and this may be important in this very contentious uh, conversation that we may have tonight, he also just told me uh, this afternoon that he's a middle child. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the youngest. <laughs> the youngest, and I'm the oldest. So here, we'll have a, a family feud here. But... Uh, uh, Dr. Alex Hall is a UCLA professor whose previous work includes helping develop the global climate models used by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, also known as the IPCC, the international body that the United Nations relies on for climate predictions. He's an associate professor in UCLA's Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences and a member of UCLA's Institute of the Environment and Sustainability where he's a faculty director of the UCLA Center for Climate Change Solutions. Uh, from Chicago, he received uh, his BA from Pomona College and went on to get a PhD in atmospheric and oceanic studies at Princeton University and then a, had a postdoc at the uh, famous Lamont Doherty Earth Observ Observatory. Uh, at Columbia University uh, before coming to UCLA, before coming back west in 2000, and we're really glad that he's here with us uh, at UCLA and in, in Los Angeles. So Alex's, Alex's work um, is really cool, geeky, nerd stuff. Um, and I'm going to try to describe it, and then I'm going to ask him to tell me, you know, how, how, how I'm doing. So these global climate models that predict what's going to happen over the next century and more and less, uh, they've generally been done at a uh, 100 to 200 kilometer grid cell. 
So a square 100 to 200 kilometers or 60 to 120 miles on each side is the pixel size of these things. Uh, and, and so, but Los Angeles itself is just one pixel in these global climate models. And what Alex and his colleagues did is to take those models and through a process called dynamic downscaling that required months of supercomputer time, brought them down so that we could get a detailed picture of Los Angeles area, Los Angeles neighborhoods, where the pixels are just two kilometers on each side. So 1.6 miles, uh, you know, about the distance that you could walk in 30 minutes, a neighborhood, the scale at which we all live. And as we know in Los Angeles, the weather, the climate is very different if you live in Venice or if you live downtown or in Pasadena or the San Fernando Valley or out in Palm Springs. So tell us, what does the model predict for different neighborhoods in the Los Angeles area? Well, the, there's, there's another challenge, too, with this problem, is that there are, you know, there are probably 30-something global climate models that have been developed around the world, and they give different answers um, about um, how climate will change. So one of the challenges of this project was also to downscale all of these models um, and provide information about likelihood and, un and uncertainty. Um, which is a key element, I think, in, in, in the climate change debate, is, is being honest about um, what we don't know as well. Um, as far as the, the, the Los Angeles region goes, what we, what we do know is that, um, is that there were very consistent spatial patterns that emerged when we downscaled all these models. Um, and one common feature was a lot more warming inland than at the coast. Um, so if um, at any point that was separated from the coast by a mountain complex, um, like the San Bernardino Mountains or even the Santa Monica Mountains, um, those areas experience more warming than at the coast. Um, so we did see that very consistently. So that's something that's very robust that we saw um, in, in, every, in every single case. Um, so f and, and that has a lot of consequences for things like extreme events. If you're trying to understand the impact of a warming climate on people, um, the, the extreme days are the, the extremely hot days are the, the days that really matter. And so um, if you go inland in these areas that are already quite, quite warm on average, um, in the summertime they experience a disproportionately larger number of, of very warm days than the coastal areas. So that's an example of the type of um, kind of fine-scale information that we were providing with this study to try to um, really put, put the... Um, the power in the hands of the people who are making decisions about how to adapt to climate change um, by providing them fine-scale information and also uncertainty information so that they can choose for themselves what kind of risk levels they, they are interested in, in tolerating. So you, you, your, your, your model was, because it was really focused on providing this kind of useful information for people who live here today, for policymakers, for thinking about this, your model was aimed at, at predicting what would things be like mid-century. Right. Between 2040 and 2060, when, you know, my students, our students are going to be our age. Um, so they're going to, you know, they're going to be around and living through this. So it's very, very relevant. What, so what was it like? I mean, so what was, what did you find would happen in Venice, Culver City, downtown, San Fernando Valley, Pasadena? So we, um, so one of the other sources of uncertainty surrounding climate change is the fact that we don't know exactly how, um, how, much emissions will evolve, or how they will evolve over the course of the, of the coming decades. So we chose two different emission scenarios to examine. 
Um, one is a scenario where you know, energy um, production changes from one based on fossil fuels to one based on renewables um, or, or non-carbon emitting um, energy sources. And um, that happens over the next couple of decades, which is kind of the most optimistic scenario you can imagine. <laughs> okay? um, and then the other scenario is, what, is kind of a business as usual scenario where the foss fossil fuel emissions keep increasing in the same way they have been. Um, and then we examined, we kind of took a snapshot, you know, 2050, right around then, those, the couple decades centered around 2050, and asked, what, what will these two different scenarios um, be like um, in terms of climate in Los Angeles? And um, we found, um, in both cases, the most likely outcome, um, which is the average of all these different models, um, is something um, like a, a warming of a few degrees Fahrenheit. Um, in both cases, actually, the, the scenario where there was um, where there was mitigation, um, where there was a reduction in fossil fuel emissions, had about 70% the warming that, that we saw in the um, business as usual scenario. Um, so one of the you know, um, things that kind of raised our eyebrows, at least, in the study is that, um, is that there was a lot of warming, even, even in the scenario where the energy production shifted to one based on, on renewables. Um, so that was a that was one of the things that, that we, we thought was interesting. But, the, but also, I mean, these extreme days, I mean, so that, I mean, I, I remember in September when it was super hot, uh, you know, even down by the beach, but it was, you know, very, very hot. Over 100, I think it got to in Pasadena and at one point downtown. I mean, your model predicts that, uh, that in, in downtown, we're going to see those number of days that are over 95 degrees increase from around one to five days a year. Yeah, so in both the scenarios, we saw, we saw you know, ruffling, roughly a, a doubling, or some, in some cases a quintupling, depending on how far inland you are, of the number of extremely hot days. So these areas that are very far inland, places like Palm Springs, um, Palmdale, um, these areas experienced a very large increase in the number of extremely hot days, up to five times as many. Nearer the coast, it was more like twice or three times as many. Um, so really pretty significant differences in, 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 the, in, the, in the weather, um, especially during the summertime. And so you, you, I mean, you just said something I would want to kind of underline. I mean, that even in the best case scenario, we're going to experience 70% of these effects. And so, I mean, in, in, in that sense, uh, we have to adapt. We have, we have no choice. I mean, even if, even if we do the most that we can do to reduce emissions, we're going to have to adapt to a great deal of these changes. I think that's one of the, one of the main lessons of the study that, that, that we undertook, um, is that there's no, in some sense, there's no, um, there's no chance of us really returning to a pre-industrial climate, um, or even a, the, the, you know, the climate of the 20th century. We're, we're really on a different trajectory. Um, and, there's, there's, and we have to deal with that reality. Um, so that's, that's one lesson that I think that our, our, our report showed. Now, I want to emphasize that um, in these two scenarios I talked about, the one that gets the emissions under control versus the business-as-usual scenario, um, there are huge differences um, in, in, in climate by the end of the 20th, 21st century. Um, there's roughly two and a half times as much warming in the business-as-usual versus this scenario where we um, go towards a renewables future. So the consequences are enormous of our choices, but they really are not so much in the coming decades. They're more in the coming century. 
Um, and that's a th an interesting theme too. This this yeah, theme yeah. of um, people, you know, people having to make different choices for different generations. Right. Or do we make choices that matter in our lifetimes or in in, in the future? And, and and we'll get to that. But I want to ask I me mean, to, to to turn to you, Andy. Why has adaptation been such a dirty word? Well, I think there was, for a long time, uh, this der derives from the earliest days when Al Gore wrote his first book. Um, um, in 1990, he sa basically said it was unethical to talk about adaptation. In his new book, uh, that's just out now, The Future, he is, he's acknowledging that that was an error and that we do need to have parallel tracks. So you, you have to adapt and work on, as you can, going forward on mitigating the emissions that are going to drive that long-term picture. But this is, again, this is why this is what um, some really smart um, economists several years ago called this um, a super wicked problem. In economics, wicked is an actual term of economic problems that have multiple facets. And if you tweak one knob, the other one goes this way. So it's a complicated system. And they, they uh, Kelly Levin and then Richard Lazarus called this super wicked. And actually, I've written on my blog that it's beyond super wicked because some of the elements they didn't put into their, their assessment, um, like this bind you get into you know, human nature still, including our politics, not just individuals, we don't think for the long term. And so if you're guaranteed to have basically roughly the same amount of warming on a short politically re relevant time scale and a Again, the, the worst, uh, the, 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 the long tail of this problem is 2100 and beyond. How, how, if you're an environmental activist, uh, how do you generate activism, an actual response based on those long trajectories? And it's really hard. I just wrote the other, just today, about uh, the asteroid. We had, we had these two cosmic, <laughs> you know, close shaves uh, on the same day, completely unrelated. And I just wrote today uh, on Dot Earth about how they are too, you know, we're completely uninvested in the cheap, very cheap technology it would take to have a telescope that could find a lot of these and cut the odds of a, boost the odds of us finding and deflecting one before it, it strikes. And, and, and the, the, the title of the thing was, can we be smarter than dinosaurs? And the answer, and the answer was uh, from Rusty Schweiker, this Apollo 9 astronaut, said, well, no, not, it doesn't look the that way. The jury's out. Yeah. Uh, but, so, so, but, but yeah, and so we might, I mean, we might ask, I mean, is Al Gore smarter than a dinosaur? If the question was posed that adaptation is unethical, because the, 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 the argument was that if we talked about adaptation, we wouldn't think about mitigation, that we wouldn't think yeah. about st you know, stopping emissions. Well, it was, it was unfortunate. Was that, is that a, was that a mistake? I think so, yeah. In, in 2006, I wrote a story for the Weekend Review section of the Times. The title was Yelling Fire on a Hot Planet. And um, a big chunk of that article was focused on um, social science uh, from a meeting that Al Gore was at. Uh, a, guy, a guy at Yale named Dan Abbasi wrote a big report about this meeting later where they, they, in 2006, were saying we should start, we should really focus on adaptation. Because once people are integrated with the idea that the climate is changing, then they can move from that to start to, to really assess and, and integrate into their thinking and their responses what, what to do about the, the drivers of climate change as well as just getting, you know, right. adjusting I mean, to it. I, I think that's, that's absolutely true. There's, I think the, it seems to me that the biggest barrier to mitigation, to you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions is um, the the um, inability of, of people generally to grapple with the problem, um, and 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 you know the 
the, the fact that a lot of people just don't believe it exists. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, I think there, there was an example um, recently of a, um, of, a, of a study that was done um, to help a, a certain water utility cope with climate change. And, um, and they did a survey before the, um, before the study was done of the beliefs of these water engineers about climate change and whether, whether they thought it was real. Um, and most of them thought it wasn't real. And then they, then they helped them with, um, with an adaptation plan for, to confront climate change. And it turned out that a lot of their plans were, re were pretty resilient to the changing climate in, in the area. And they did the same survey afterwards. And these people, their beliefs about, you know, the beliefs that it was an important issue um, 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 were, you know, were, were very strong after, after they did this adaptation exercise. So, so after I think, they've started talking about adaptation. Right. So I think to get to the, you know, to get to the mitigation conversation, the adaptation conversation may be necessary. Which is a, completely the reverse of how it was being approached before. For I mean, a long the, time. For, yeah. for, for a long yeah. time. Yeah. So let me ask you I mean, a question. I mean, do you think, I mean, given that we're going to experience 70% of the effects of global warming climate change here, no matter what we do, would it be reasonable to say we should, you know, we should invest you know, even if we even if we don't, you know, invest 100% in adaptation, we got a lot of we got a lot of grief for titling this conversation. Should we just adapt to climate right. change? You know, no, um, so even if, if we were to say, okay, but should we should 70% of our effort go into you know go into adaptation? Well, one, you know, I've written about this on the global scale and, and national scale, in the sense that one way around this is to separate the questions differently. Um, as we learned in New York this uh, year, we are implicitly vulnerable to hurricanes, period. There was a huge destructive hurricane in 1821 that swamped Manhattan all the way up to Canal Street, where it is now. And, and, the, and we were just been lucky. The, the, the dynamics of meteorology tends to send most hurricanes not into the New York bite. This one did that really bizarre kind of left hook. Um, but, it, but again, it happened in 1821. There's, there's plenty of research that I've written about uh, going back through the Holocene, back through these last 10,000 years of periods of extreme storminess. So, so if you just say, look, we are vulnerable. We've built a huge amount of infrastructure. We've had population growth in areas that are implicitly in harm's way. The Colorado wildfires, uh, the, the fires east of uh, Austin, Texas. That I, when I wrote about those fires, you know, climate change is clearly exerting an influence on drought and heat in Texas, but the population in that region had quadrupled since 1970. I went to census.gov, looked up the numbers, and in Bastrop County, which was 1,000 homes burned, 70, 40 years ago, those homes weren't there, and it was a fire-prone region then. So, so if you separate climate vulnerability, vulnerability to extremes, and the imperative for that long-term picture of you know, real climate change, you, you know, where, where there is that divergence, um, and that comes with an imperative, even as energy gets more abundant, the fossil, there's another thing we should probably talk about, the fossil era is a lot longer than we thought it was because of well, shale. I, th I mean, I think um, that... The, then then you can, I think you can have a better chance of an, a good outcome. Yeah, I mean, the things, that you, the, things, the things that we would do to build resiliency to climate change are the things that you would do to build resiliency to, to anything, really. And, and right. so there's, um, you know, I mean... Uh, an example in, in Los Angeles might be um, our, our, our transportation sector. Um, you know, to, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in Los Angeles, really, we have to confront transportation. Um, 
Um, I don't know if any of you had problems getting here tonight. I, I did. <laughs> um, um, and, you know, and, but the pr one of the big problems um, with transportation also is just, it's just really congested and it doesn't work that well anymore. You know, it's, it's a system that was engineered 50 years ago that really just doesn't function that well anymore. Um, so there's kind of a win-win there. Uh, actually, yeah. so one, one other yeah. quick example. Um, Chicago had a had terrible heat wave, uh, heat, heat event. Um, I can't remember how many years ago. Um, a study was done of which neighborhoods had lower mortality and which didn't, and it was a function of social cohesion. Um, and the people who knew where to check on the elderly person on the fifth floor of a walk-up knew that there was better outcomes there. So if you have an area, as you were saying, with multiple hazards, earthquakes, <laughs> heat here, you know, the more social cohesion you build in, the better chance of outcomes, good outcomes in, in all of Right, and there areas. were studies of some of those heat waves in Europe that I think, I mean, there were sort of, I, as I read it, there were kind of two factors. One was shade. Right. So, you know, trees, um, or, you know, trees are good, and, and knowing your neighbors, having a or, community, or, social right. community. I think the other thing what, I read about what there What we was might call social capital. Neglect of the grandparents, too, I think, was one of them. In, yeah. In, in yeah. So, it, I mean, you've, we've moved into talking about, talking about Los Angeles and the possibilities here, and, 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 and cities have really become major players in urging action to address climate change and adaptation and really kind of nowhere more so than with your mayor, Michael yeah. Bloomberg. Yeah. Um, why is that? Why have cities become such well, a center of action? Cities are the center of action in the century. Uh, we've become an urban species in the last few years. We've tipped from being a mainly agrarian species to a mainly urban species. Uh, look at Lagos, Nigeria. Um, you know, these, they're, they're, they're magnets for, for people. Uh, that's where the jobs are um, from, from there right through the, the developed countries. So cities can either work well and resiliently and, and sustain their capacity to be a thriving place in a cli changing climate, or can, if, if they're not uh, planned with that in mind, then they become very problematic places. Um, and the other, the other factor, I think, is that the, the national and international arenas um, haven't been functioning all that well on many issues, including the environment. And um, I think that's part of the reason why um, in, in, in cities and in smaller, um, smaller governmental units, there's, there seems to be, there's, there's a lot of desire for change and it's, there's a frustration, I think, with, um, with national politics and international politics on, on a lot of things, including climate change. That's part of, the, part of the reason I think the sustainability conversation has shifted to local, to the local level. And by the way, there's, all, there's also another one of these instances of many, multiple wins. Um, most sustainable cities have, are healthier. They're healthier in many ways. Uh, people walk more, they, um, so you have healthier outcomes, uh, as well as having lower energy use and, and um, so you can kind of get, get these multiple benefits. So you're, I know your, your particular research um, is, is not on some of the other effects of, of, of climate change, um, such as the diminishing snowpack in the Sierra Nevada that will affect our water supply, rising sea levels. No, we, we have studies coming out on those topics as you well. You do, so, great. So in, in June, our, our, um, our study, um, 
was, um, was on, on the temperature dimension of climate change. Well, can you tell us a little bit about <laughs> any of those things? I mean, without, uh, uh, without breaking any embargo or anything? Uh, well, there, there, I, I can tell you there's a website set up um, for, for, the, um, for all these studies to come out. It's called Sea Change LA, and mm. um, it is the, the repository for all, all these studies that are coming out. So we're going to do, we're releasing a study on snow in Los Angeles. I know it's not, people don't think of Los Angeles as a center for, for snow, um, but we do have snow in, at the high elevations. So well, the grapevine was just closed. Yes. <laughs> um, and um, we're also looking at the Santa Anas and, and wildfire, and we do see some very interesting impacts on the Santa Ana events um, in the future that are pretty robust and systematic across these different simulations that we've been working on. Um, and we're also looking at um, um, hydrologic factors like runoff um, and precipitation. Um, so, so we so stay tuned. Definitely, we have we have more coming out on, on this stuff. And this, by the way, was, was funded by the uh, mayor's office um, mm -hmm. here in Los Angeles mm -hmm. um, to the Department of Energy. So, we had help um, on that on that level too. And so, what are some of the things? I mean, what, in, I mean in addition to the transportation system, you know, they, they, that you talked about. I mean, what are some of the things that uh, we can do over the next 30, 40 years? in Los Angeles to adapt to these changes that are coming. And I just want to talk about adaptation, but then also talk, you know, we can then go on to talk about how those things might also help with mitigation, but just to talk about adaptation, what are some of the things we can do? Well, we, we didn't focus um, explicitly on adaptation. Um, we, just, we just provided information about the changes in the, in the environment, the physical environment. Um, but there have been a lot of ideas floated um, um, the idea of, of changing um, um, the, the color of, of roofs so that, so that they're more reflective of sunshine. I think there's a, there's a conference about that, that in LA that's coming up. They call them cool roofs. The cool roofs, right, exactly. Um, and, um, you know, the, the other, I think, um, issue that comes up is the resiliency of the power grid um, because on hot days, um, people draw a lot of power for air conditioning. And, um, this is, again, where this spatially explicit information is useful um, because the San Fernando Valley is an example of a place that, that would probably um, be differentially impacted by these extreme events. So you would want to make sure that the power grid is in, in properly engineered so that it can support um, that kind of demand. Um, issues like um, heat trauma centers for, for people who don't have access to air conditioning, um, where do you put those? Where does the city put those? Those are the kinds of practical questions that can be addressed by this. And, and, uh, is, it, is that a, is a heat trauma center something like I also have heard about a cooling center? Yeah, I think I that mean, might be the same thing. Okay, yeah. so it's a, for example, a swimming pool where right. you could go and cool down or a, a, someplace that has shade and water. And, and I think also there's, a, there's an initiative in LA to plant more trees um, and to make sure, to, and you know, certainly when there are trees, the, um, the, the local microclimate is, is cooler. Um, and, and I guess shade was an issue I didn't realize in, in the heat wave in, in Europe um, also you know, recently. So that's a, that's a concrete step, I think, that also, again, is kind of a win-win. It's nice to be on a street that's shaded and tree-lined. So. Would, would you add anything to those? Oh, uh, well, those? water conservation. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Colorado, uh, LA gets a significant amount of its water from the Colorado Basin, correct? I think. Yes. Um, and that basin, well, what's the latest modeling in terms of where things will go. The southwestern go. U.S. Um, generally is, is highly vulnerable to right. um, a warming climate, and, um, and particularly in water resources, in the air of water resources. Yeah. 
The other thing well, I think is Sierra Nevada is expected to just have about 50% of the snowpack that it's had right, historically, that's, that's, right? I mean, we depend a lot on that water that... Right, and that's not so much about the amount of the resource, but the, the fact that the Sierra Nevada is a natural reservoir that we rely on to stage the delivery of water throughout the summertime. Um, and if that goes away, we have to have build bigger dams and bigger reservoirs, basically, so that we can hold the water when it falls as precipitation, uh, rainfall rather yeah. than snow. And water conservation is also energy conservation. I think uh, yes. someone out there may know the answer to this. I, I remember years ago hearing that more power is used to bring water to L.A. than is used by all the things L.A. plugs into sockets. Uh, I heard this somewhere. Anyone know? Well, I've, I, do know, I do know that, that about... That's a, a lot. About 19, 20% of the power in California is used to move water around. So there you go. Around. So, uh, so the less water you have to move around, the yeah. less energy you're using means fewer emissions. Yeah. And so, I mean, these things, I mean, in addition, I mean, you, you talked about, I mean, the, the, I, I think you were, you know, saying, I mean, there's all these other benefits of mitigation. I mean, of, 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 of having a, you know, having a transportation system, what some people call multimodal transportation system, where you could ride your bike to a bus, put your bike on the bus, ride to you know the bus to the train or you know wherever you're going get off on your bike and you know or the you know parks open space more trees cooling centers water conservation right. more efficient buildings cool roofs all of those kinds of things i mean well there's a lot of cool in there it sounds like i mean these are also <laughs> it they sound like a nicer city to live in uh, so they have these other benefits, but there's also a fair number of them that sound to me like they're cutting down our energy use or our carbon emissions as well. So that these these adaptation strategies are also mitigation strategies. Is that I think there's. <laughs> I think we we need to re rethink what the good life is um, in so, in some ways. You know, I. I um, um, recently moved with my family to a new um, to a new house, and and one of the criteria that we chose for for the um, the move was proximity to public transit. And so I've been, I bought a folding bicycle, and I've been going on the bus um, every day to to uh, to work at UCLA. And um, you know, people when I say that, that I do this, people look at me like I'm a saint, like I've made some kind of sacrifice. But it's actually fun. I'm having way. <laughs> it's actually pretty enjoyable. Um, you know, I get to ride my bike and burn some calories and see the people who live in the city where I live, and it's actually faster than the car in many cases. Um, and and that's so a, that's the best so, feeling is when you're whizzing I, by you're, you're on the a cars. bicycle and all these cars are stuck. Um, and and you know, I it's and I'm I'm saving money. You know, who's the victim there? I don't know. It's it's my Scottish ancestors are thrilled. You know, I'm, I'm saving. It's a great thing. So I don't I don't think it's 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 always a question of you know you have to um, eat your bran. Um, I think I think it can be good. Yeah. <laughs> it can be good. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So so um, I mean that it it seems like that is also a you've just you've just told a very positive story, a very positive narrative about climate change and how we might adapt to it. Um, it this is this seems quite different than the, you know, the, 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 the story of, you know, we must fight to stop carbon emissions or the Keystone yeah. Pipeline or draw the line at 350. Yes. 
Yeah, and I think that that's necessary. I think I think we have to tap into um, people's people's sense of optimism and their desire to be um, optimistic about their future. I think that's part of um, you know part of human psychology that that the dinosaurs probably didn't have, um, which is which we can somehow we have to leverage somehow. Um, and I think we can. I think in, in many cases we can. So. You know, I don't think that means, you know, obviously there are, there are big expenses, too. I think it's expensive to retrofit water resource infrastructure in California to build reservoirs that are twice as large, and they're big costs. But um, I think we've faced bigger challenges than that. And if you look back in the human past, even just the past century, I think it seems to me we've faced bigger, bigger things, bigger threats, and people have found a way around them. So We're pretty good at adapting. I think so, yeah. Although even you know even on the mitigation argument, um, the tools of the 20th century were essentially two things: woe is me and shame on you. It's it's Exxon's fault or it's some some mainly Republican president's fault, or but it's not my fault. And 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 one thing that um, I've tried to do periodically, I did plenty. I've done plenty of woe is me and shame on you journalism, uh, investigative stuff on what the Bush administration did to suppress science and that kind of thing. But I think at a certain point, I recognize, especially when I started to dive into the behavioral research, um, that, um, and also when you look at the realities, you know, Exxon pumps oil so that we can drive our cars and in the Northeast where I live so I can heat my house. It's a, heating oil is what we use. And so if I don't integrate some of that, if I don't sort of turn the finger back on myself, then I'm not being honest to the, the nature of the problem to some extent. I think there was, so we have to move past what was me and shame on you if we're gonna get not just on the adaptation side, but on, on, on mitigation as well. And you, were, uh, you, you told a story about you were just in a class, in, in a room full of kids. Where oh, there's yeah. a, at the same time that the big protests were happening in Washington, D.C., where, yeah. where, where, where were you? Well, as, as the middle child of the climate debate, I, uh, <laughs> I get hammered by uh, left and right. And, and believe me, you know, I don't want to be in the middle. I like to be rational. I t try to think of myself as my opinion, you know, I write for the op-ed section, my opinion is that reality matters. And that sometimes makes me, uh, makes people unhappy with me who have, who are, you know, have a certain agenda, a certain worldview. So uh, on the Keystone fight, essentially I've been saying, not quite to the extent Joe Nocera said in the Times a couple of days ago when he called the protest boneheaded, which I think was not productive. Um, I, I, I have been among no, those- Don't fight. Don't no, I, I, I've been among those who said, who've, you look at the global energy, oil market and you realize that as long as the oil price is somewhere around $100 a barrel, we are essentially going to be going to the ends of the earth, the dirtiest possible places to get the last drops. Uh, of course, now we won't have to because California is going to be the next shale oil bonanza. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that like, hey, you know, I'm just pointing that out. Uh, so maybe, maybe it won't be, uh, the Alber maybe the Alberta tar sands won't look so attractive. Um, so, but what I'm saying is it's high demand that drives the oil, the oil extraction imperative. And so until you start to do the things we've been talking about to cut demand, um, you can blockade a certain pipeline or whatever, but that oil will out somewhere. If it'll be Nigeria or the Arctic, if it's not Alberta. And that's, so that gets me in trouble. So, so, so there's a lot of yelling. The whole climate debate for years has been this yelling match and yelling fire on a hot planet. Remember the piece I wrote in 2006? Um, then I, on Monday, I was in Washington DC at a meeting, uh, it was part of National Engineers Week and these young people from around the country, middle school students, came 
for the finals of this big future cities competition. These kids had to build model cities, very detailed, with water catchment areas for stormwater, with water filtration, with thinking about fire hazard. And you know, they were building Indian cities. Uh, some, some students did a, a city in Norway. Uh, some did um, Phoenix. And, and instead of yelling, I heard cheering. And I thought, oh, God, it felt so great. Uh, and it's so much more powerful. Are we ready? I think that's a good note on which to open it up <laughs> to all of you. I'm wondering how you convince people to comply with these more productive types of mitigation and adaptation. How do you persuade people, to your point, to rethink the good life? Like, what is the strategy for that? Because I don't see it happening around me nearly enough. Uh, actually, it was Cuomo who announced uh, buyback. They're, they're basically, they're, they're taking away neighborhoods that shouldn't be there anymore in the flood zones. And uh, so money, it's money there. And they could do a um, enforced, what do you call it, eminent domain, but they're actually trying to give a bonus if you agree to give up your land in an area that should really be a sand dune. So, so there's, there, there, there are examples of that kind of softening of landscapes. New York City's and the, and the state's plans uh, that were just announced by Cuomo a couple of months ago do in, include a lot of sort of softening hard edges. So it's possible to ungrow uh, or to sort of Reinvent suburbia. It takes time, though. That that stuff will take a lot of time, and there is resistance because polit politicians don't like to give up stuff. You know, you don't you cut ribbons to put something. You don't cut a ribbon to take something away. So it's it's a tough challenge. I don't know around here if you, there's other um, instances like this. I think you know there's there's in Los Angeles there's a there's a lot of it seems to me a lot of um, a conversation about land use is, and and. Um, you know, we're, we're, tr we're trying to retrofit this 20th century city for, for the 21st century and um, build, build transit-oriented development. And um, I think there's, there's been a lot of positive uh, movement in that direction recently, and people seem, seem to gravitate towards neighborhoods that are more walkable, and that seems to be a criteria that people are applying to their... Salt Lake... It's, 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 it's definitely um, a long haul. I heard a great story in Salt Lake City before the Olympics. They put in one little spur of light rail, and, and uh, it was a fight to get it in. But once it was in, the people started demanding more. So part of you know, demonstrating yes. success, building on prototypes, fi yes. finding at least the money to do prototype or small scale, and then building from that is important. Steve Schneider, a great uh, Californian climate scientist, um, talked about building small demonstration success stories. And then, and then you can build toward the, the tougher policies from there. The mitigation question, I think, is really an important uh, one. And money is certainly a big deal. But we look at places like the Netherlands, which are in grave risk, and they're spending serious money, and have been for many years, to put up, you know, giant gates that push out the, the stuff. Is New York going to have to look at stuff like that? Is there ever going to be a um, consensus on that kind of serious mitigation adaptation or uh, something like that in, in the years to come? What do you see? I don't see a lot of prospects for um, storm gates in New York City, partially because of the geography is different. And the issues in, you know, when you're talking about that existential threat to a country, it's the level of uh, buy-in is higher. Although even in the Netherlands now, they're starting to, uh, there's a whole program, I forgot what it's called in Dutch, someone out there probably knows. Uh, they are starting to give back to the sea as well. So, so even there, there's only so much you can do with hardening. And um, in New York City, then one of the issues with storm gates is 
you're basically displacing the surge into adjacent communities. So like Wall Street would be fine, but you know, there's parts of Queens that wouldn't be. So you end up with these, these kinds of battles as well. Yeah, so I think there will, be places, there will be places that will be hardened and protected, very, very valuable. I've heard, I think like around the port there is, know, of Los Angeles, but other places, other places will retreat and give space there's back a, there's, to the ocean. At Lamont, uh, Klaus, Klaus Jacob, a scientist at Lamont Doherty, where where um, Alex did some work, um, has talked, I was at another meeting with him recently, he was talking about this uh, retrofitting of Wall Street where you're gonna see causeway, like linkages between buildings above the ground floor. And, and the, you know, we'll be seeding the ground floors to more to parkland that can be flooded. And you'll, you'll see kind of an, evol an evolution, an un unwrapping of the hard city and, going forward in ways that'll be fascinating. It seems that today the temperature change has been pretty well predicted overall. Um, but the effects seem to be outpacing it, particularly things like changes in, in ice volumes, things like that. And to what degree do the models not take into account things like basic phase transformations and, and tripping points with reservoirs, things like uh, carbon and permafrost and in gas hydrates, that really uh, we could have some very dangerous situations far beyond the upper bounds we currently are projecting? You know, there's been an emphasis on the, on the ways in which these models um, seem to give more apocalyptic answers than, than people would like, but the reality may be that they are too conservative in, some, in, in a kind of small c conservative sense um, because they um, generally don't include um, some of the important biogeochemical feedbacks associated, for example, with the release of methane clathrates in the ocean. Um, and and um, perhaps most conspicuously, they don't include generally um, ice sheet dynamics. Um, and so the ways in which the Greenland ice sheet um, might, might evolve in the future and, and profoundly affect sea level um, is something that is almost completely ignored. Um, and it's also true that the Arctic, um, changes in the Arctic have been somewhat under-simulated in these, in these models in general. So those are, um, those are you know, weaknesses of the models that, that um, might, might indicate that there would, might, might be surprises in the future that we haven't exactly planned for. We are within one mile of the largest urban oil field in the United States. Uh, currently, there is hydraulic fracturing going on in Los Angeles on an active 7.4 fault line. Uh, obviously, we've talked about uh, water issues, which, uh, you know, in oil drilling, that's a big issue. Uh, seismic activity, that's been, uh, we've talked about um, the oil drilling process in terms of creating earthquakes when they, um, they put, inject water into the ground. Um, air emissions, you know, the, these are tremendous, all of these things have tremendous effects on our quality of life. The air we breathe, the ground we stand on, and the very water we drink. Why is it we are willing to take these risks? That's, that's, what was the movie, There Will Be Blood? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, we, the history of uh, the modern history, the 20th century history of this region was largely built on that stuff. Um, the Rockefeller Foundation that now dispenses money to save the planet. All that money came from that kind of ac extractive activity. And, we're still, uh, you know, we're still in that era. Um, when you, there's a, there was a paper I wrote about recently that was written in 1986 by 
a really smart group of scientists called the gas, the methane age. They foresaw the gas boom that's happening now as long ago as 1986, just based on the basic understanding of geology and um, that the gas is there, not all, not, not even including just the shale gas, but there's, so the idea, I think a lot of us had this sense that we were at the tail end of the fossil era and we're not even close. And so that's another super wicked push on, on, on these questions. Just the gas, having cheap natural gas will, will impede both the build out of renewable energy options and also basic science and energy. You know, we'll, we, Obama said something very valuable early in his first term. He talked about a shock and trance energy policy in this country. Uh, mainly focused on gas prices, he, uh, gasoline prices. But you can see that if, if, if energy prices, especially for natural gas, stay low for a long period of time, we'll be back in a trance. And the imperative to do these other uh, tougher um, pushes, whether it's build out of renewables, as Joe Rahm would like, or whether it's much more R&D, as I would like, um, it's just, it's going to be really hard to sustain that. And, and, and you know, then as far as regional issues, like where you have a lot of oil in the ground, whether it's in Los Angeles or in the, the Bakken oil field up in the Dakotas, it's um, communities have to kind of get in there and, you know, ex enforce laws, make sure the EPA is enforcing the law and pushing for tighter standards and all that stuff. And one of the ironies of the changing climate is that the Arctic is, is, is changing in a way that makes it possible to extract resources <laughs> more easily, including oil. Um, so yeah. there's a, a human kind of positive feedback there. That well, this is, gets to the reality. You know, we're, we not only adapt, but we exploit. When there's a new opportunity, we're a species that's really good at kind of diving in and say, hey, that's interesting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that could be a, that comes with a downside. My name is uh, Benjamin Fields. Um, I had my own actual idea about uh, a possible way to deal with uh, climate change. And I thought it would be cool, because I'm here, to hear the opinion of credible scientists on my weird idea. So my, I, I read online somewhere that they're developing these things. I think it's called geothermal engineering or something. They actually catch like the greenhouse gases from the atmosphere mm -hmm. and then process them back into liquid fuels. What I was thinking we should do is process, you know, we can reduce some of the greenhouse gases out there and in our atmosphere and then you know get more liquid fuel out of it and then use those liquid fuels right. to power rockets to the moon to harvest helium-3 wow. to power Earth's fusion plants because helium-3 could lead to very efficient uh, nuclear fusion um, which would take care of our energy needs very well I think I'm not sure. I read science fiction, so well, uh, I need to hear the opinion of a credible uh, scientist on this one. So just tell well, me, does would it work? President well, Obama has not chosen his new Secretary of Energy yet. Yeah. <laughs> and there's there's no higher praise than being called a credible scientist. Yeah, <laughs> but actually, uh, I've written about some of these techno uh, technologies for taking CO2, this carbon and two oxygens, taking it out of the atmosphere and turning it into a liquid fuel which would be the same as a biofuel, but if you do it efficiently, you're basically not taking new carbon out of the ground and adding it to the atmosphere, which is, that's the real issue, is, not, is adding heating compounds to the atmosphere. So if you could find a way to do that cheaply, that's, that's the big question, and without using as much energy as, as you're harvesting, which is another big question, you, you can do it. In fact, uh, the, the Defense Department funded a way to do that, but it would, it would require nuclear power. So again, if you're comfortable with nuclear power, 
you can turn the carbon in the air into a fuel right now. But then, you know, you have other, uh, those issues as well. But this is why you're calling for more R&D. I think science is great. You know, I saw those young people at that meeting um, on Monday, hundreds of them, with great ideas. Um, I've seen young innovators coming out of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute creating jobs, turning fungi, mushrooms, into packaging for wine bottles and stuff. And this, this young, research, young scientist has gone on to build a 40-employee business. And when you see that stuff up close, you realize uh, how powerful that is. If you have the, incentive, the initiative, if you have young people who want to use that innovative power to make the world a better place and not just to make more money, then you can, you can change the world. I mean, I think, I think it's, in, it's a complex enough problem that it's probably sort of like D all of the above. It's technological, it is, yeah. it's economic, it's political, it's psych, you know, it's our And it is protest, yes. too. You know, that's why <laughs> I think I was misread a little bit in terms of, you know, I'm not saying that no one should go to the White House and, and yell a little bit. There's, there's room for that, too. How long we last when we experience a collapse in the food chain because of the species that we lose, those that are not able to adapt? How long do we last in that case? I haven't done that, done that simulation. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> well, it, you know, so, much of, so much of human history the last 200 years has been this vaulting climb on technology. Uh, I, I was at the Santa Fe Institute a few years ago, and Jeffrey West, a phys, a sort of a theoretical physicist, draws these charts of the scalloped nature of our innovations, like some big innovation, then boom, then, then another one, boom, another one. And, and you keep getting, it's like piling sand. You know that at some point you can't sustain a curve that's just going up. And so I always, in my own work, you know, 25, 30 years of writing about these questions, and I still can't have a firm sense of can we sustain that or not? And, and you know, what will that look like? What is this curve of us these next 50 years going to look like? We're heading toward a plateau mid-century. We don't know what's going to happen 2100. 2200. Mid-century, we're going to top out at about 9 billion, more or less. Um, but is that going to be a jagged line? You, you know, what, or is it going to be some smooth graph? Can we modulate that graph? Can we actually intentionally, with policy and with foresight, like with the meteorite, uh, can we exert, can we uh, not hit the edge of the Petri dish and go, oh my God, we ran out of, well, I think know, there but, are, does urban, but does that urbanization also mean that there's more, possibly more there space is. for there's a great uh, nature for producing yeah. food. There have been papers that have said that the greening of the planet will come through urbanization and technology. Intensified agriculture, which we might not like for some reasons, takes away the need to compete, com keep chopping down more forests in, in developing but, countries. I mean, the, the, you mentioned the, the availability of fossil fuels, and that does, that does seem to be, be increasing, um, although we don't really know when that's going to end. Um, but um, isn't it true that there are a lot of natural resources that really are becoming more scarce, and, and as, as, as evidenced by higher prices? And I, mean, I think there are really smart people in the banking world who are making money off this um, change in the availability of natural resources. Is that, isn't that? Uh, Depends on who you talk to. Like phosphorus was, was, the, uh, was the nutrient of, of note a few years ago. Oh my god, we're running out of phosphorus. And then Morocco. Uh, reassessed and the U.S. Geological Survey confirmed their, their assessment. They have enough phosphorus to keep the world in phosphorus for, for a century or two at least. And so you end up with these, it's like this curve toward declining results and then, and then innovation kicks in on, on the extraction end or you do an end run around the resource. You say, like, I would I'd love to come to the day when coal becomes just a black rock in the ground again. I mean, once 300 years ago, coal was a black rock, you know, that, that had no real meaning 400 years ago. 
And then these in, in Wales, they started digging it out and burning it. Hi, my name's Jonathan Parfrey, and this is a question for Andy and for John. Uh, the city of Los Angeles imports about 90% of its uh, water supply, and the city currently has plans to increase its own local water supply from 10% to 37% by 2025. And the city also has plans to uh, increase the amount of uh, non fossil fuel uh, generation going from currently 20% to 33% by 2020. Um, to accomplish all these things will require rate increases. And I would like to hear from, from you guys, uh, because you're from the more of the public communication side of things. How do we talk to the people of Los Angeles about climate change to let them know that these rate increases are absolutely necessary. You may be, you may be in a tough situation. In, in New York City, when water, uh, water conservation became a problem, the city never had uh, metering of water. Uh, and I wrote a lot about the New York City water supply in the 90s. And they, they started requiring dwellings to put in meters. And they were, they were charged, you know, and they changed the, the, the structure for being charged for water. And, you know, people use less water. So, uh, but that's New York. I haven't, you know, again, I can't really... I, lived, I wrote for the LA Times for one year in the mid-1980s, so I wasn't here long enough to really learn the, the ropes. Do you have any thoughts on that, being an LA resident? Um, well, I think there are people who um, are willing to pay more, I think, if, if they understand wh why um, and, and they agree with the, the reasoning. Um, I, don't, you know, I don't have access to the polling data on that, so I, I couldn't, couldn't answer that directly in, in Los Angeles. but. Um, you know, I think there is, um, I know there is a program in, in Los Angeles for people to voluntarily get more of their power from, from renewable sources, and I think there's some kind of surcharge associated with yeah, that. Yeah, so some um, people seem willing to pay, and so I think we could look at what, what, what is it that, why, do some, why are some people willing to pay more for green sources of renewable energy or more for, their, you know, more, more for water to pay for things? But I do think this is a grand challenge, and I've sat in, in meetings with some, with some of those uh, officials who are just terrified of having to go ask for that rate increase. And I think it's because they haven't talked straight with us for a very, very long time. And that it's gonna require, you know, th this may be a, you know, maybe a, 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 you know, a, a naive kind of approach to, you know, what, what Andy has called, you know, the, this, this noosphere that we, we, we need to know more about the reality that we're living in and give it to us straight. Tell us how things work. I think that that might help. I'm Ginny Blades. I'm uh, with Transition Culver City. So that's a transition towns international movement. And um, one of our focuses is community building and self resilience and that sort of thing. So today in the email that we got from you guys for the reservation, it was um, there was something to do with the Commission of Sustainable Agriculture and Climate Change. And they had um, a piece that was from the Adaptation and Mitigation Knowledge Network. And we're really, uh, transition's really into networking and building, you know, roots out so that we have more ability to, to be resilient. And there were amazing things on this network, but it was all about these highly impacted areas with farmers dealing, 30-year-long farmers seeing the pacing of the weather and what's changed and the stress that they're going through, but also amazing technology. It's not new technology. It's like permaculture technology and things like that. Right. And, um, but it was all like in India and China and 
and um, Africa, amazing stuff. So I was wondering if any of you guys know about this sort of thing happening where people are starting to connect and share information yeah. because, you know, when the shit hits the fan, I mean, we need to be able to be resilient yeah. in many ways. And not just resilient, you know, not just technology, but, you know, like the old ways. What's happening on places like Twitter, if you know how to use it, is, is the same, and I, I teach a course in blogging now at, at Pace University, uh, but what, um, it's the same convening that used to happen at the Grange Hall or the seed store is now happening in real time around the world uh, in a place like Twitter. I'll give you one way to find it, specifically related to what you're talking about. Hashtags are basically just a pound sign in front of a phrase, and it's a way to convene around a question or an idea or a, a zoning battle, whatever. And so there's a hashtag called AgChat, A-G-C-H-A-T, pound sign. So you go to twitter.com, you put that term in there, and you're immediately immersed in a uh, global discussion on the future of agriculture, AgChat. There's one called WJChat, which is about journalism on the web. <laughs> and there's one called EdChat, and there's one called EdTech, if you want to learn how to use technology in the classroom, and on and on and on. And, and, it's, and, and it's happening. This is what I call noosphere. We're, we're knitting our knowledge in ways that are just un unprecedented. So if you have a great idea and you're in Haiti building a water filtration system and it's applicable in Botswana, it will get there. And as you know, I think you've, you know, the, the noosphere is an old idea about human yeah. cognition being a third sphere on the planet right. in addition planet to the geosphere the and the biosphere. The, the connections between um, the between people that are that are increasing and that you all you are all part of here coming tonight to be part of Zocalo right. Public Square. Right. So thank you. With that, thank you so much. Thank you.